If you have a, a copy of God's word, please take it out and turn with me to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. I'll read uh, this glorious psalm for us, then I'll pray, and then we will dive into our study of this psalm uh, this morning. Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you are spoken, O city of God. Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that as we look into your word, that you would move me out of the way, that you would take anything that might distract our minds and our hearts, and that you would move those things out of the way so that we might receive your word, which is living and active. We pray that you would transform our minds, our hearts, and our lives. And having encountered your word, that Christ would be honored and glorified in our lives and in this church. We pray this for his glory. Amen. In the year 2009, a young man, age 23, uh, the son of a very wealthy businessman who was raised in one of the most affluent neighborhoods of Nigeria and ended up receiving a degree in mechanical engineering from the University College in London, attempted to detonate plastic explosives on an airplane that was flying from Amsterdam to Detroit on Christmas Day. Thankfully, his attempt at this failed. Later, when this young man named Umar Farouk Abdul Matalab was asked why he did what he did, this is how he answered. In late 2009, in fulfillment of a religious obligation, I decided to participate in jihad against the United States. The Quran obliges that every able Muslim participate in jihad and fight in the way of Allah, those who fight you and kill them wherever you find them. Let me repeat that that last line there. The Quran obliges that every able Muslim participate in jihad and fight in the way of Allah. Now, there are those in our society who want to argue that Umar and those like him are anomalies within the Muslim faith. And while they are anomalies in terms of the extremity of their actions, they are not in terms of the theology that drives them. Here's what one apologetics website writes. Anyone who wants to commit violence has 
perfect justification for doing so in the Quran. While violence in the Quran is sometimes for self-defense, at other times it is open-ended aggression. There is nothing in the Quran comparable to Jesus' teachings to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies. Many passages in the Quran exhort Muslims to hate or kill or terrorize infidels. By infidels, it means non-Muslims, wherever they find them. Now, there are certain passages in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, which depict the Old Testament people of God warring against other nations and at times completely wiping out those other nations. Those are some of the most difficult passages in Scripture, aren't they? And you work through a few of them during your recent study in the book of Exodus. But there is another thread that runs throughout Scripture. That runs throughout not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. That is not found in Islam or any other religion. What's that thread? It is a thread that shows us that the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, is a God who often takes his enemies and makes them his friends. He is a God who takes, if you will, infidels, those who stand in stubborn rebellion against him, and by his grace, he makes them his people. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. Here's the main point of of Psalm 87. The great city of God will one day become a city for all the nations of the world. That's Psalm 87. The great city of God, the city of Zion, will one day become a city for all the nations of the world, including those nations who historically have been Yahweh and Israel's greatest enemies. And it will be for these nations a city, a place of belonging and joyful worship. That's what we see in Psalm 87. And, and in light of what we see in Psalm 87, in light of what we see of God's heart in Psalm 87, I would contend that every Christian, meaning every single one of you who claims the name of Christ, and every local church, including this church, CGBC, ought to have God's heart for the nations of the world, all the nations of the world, including and especially those who seem farthest away from him. Now, I have three simple points this morning. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give them, give them to you in advance. First, the preeminence of Zion. The preeminence of Zion. Second point, the people of Zion. The people of Zion. Third, the praise of Zion. The praise of Zion. Our first point, the preeminence of Zion, we see in verses 1 through 3. So please have your Bibles open with you because all we'll be doing is marching through this text and looking at cross-references this morning. Notice first in verse 1 that we read this. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. First thing we need to notice, 
that two crucial things are left ambiguous from this verse. What are those two things? First, we have no idea what city the psalmist is referring to, do we? Is he talking about Sacramento? Is he talking about Elk Grove? We don't know. Not from verse 1. The second thing that is left ambiguous, we don't know who the he is, right? And that ambiguity begins to create this level of anticipation as we work through the psalm, right? Who, who is the he and what is this city? And as we move into verses 2 and 3, what is initially ambiguous is made clear. Verse 2 and 3, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Verse 3, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. So who is the he of verse 1? It's God. It is God himself. It is Yahweh. And what, what city is being talked about there? What city did he found? It is the city of Zion, the great city of God. Now, question for us. Right? What is Zion? Right, if you've been around the church long enough, you, you've heard that, that word before. What is Zion? Well, let's think about it. So, so technically speaking, Zion was this hill within the city limits of Jerusalem. And originally, it was a Jebusite stronghold, a safe place for the Jebusites that, that David captured after he was anointed king. Now, now, after this, this stronghold was actually used to house the Ark of the Covenant. So before the temple was ever built, the, the Ark of the Covenant was housed on this hill called Zion. And because it was the original um, home, if you will, of the Ark of the Covenant, it, Zion became associated not just with that particular hill, which was a Jebusite stronghold. It became associated with the Temple Hill in Jerusalem. Now, as Israel's history unfolds, Zion becomes associated with two other things. So it goes from being associated with the Temple Hill to the entire city of Jerusalem itself. And then, and this takes place during the exile of the people of God, it becomes associated with the entire land of Judah. Okay? So as the Old Testament unfolds, Zion seems to have three primary references. First, it is the Temple Hill in Jerusalem, and then it is associated with the city of Jerusalem itself, and finally, it is associated with the entire land of Judah. Now, in our passage, Psalm 87, it seems like the author is using Zion as a poetic synonym for specifically the city of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, there are several things that should stand out to us about Zion as we look at these first few verses. First, notice it is depicted as the city of God. You see that? Right? What does that mean? It means that it was the city that God chose and the city that God established and the city that serves his purposes. It's the city of God. It's not primarily the city of David or the city of the people of Israel. It is God's city. Second, we see that it is his chosen city. Right? We note that Yahweh loves the gates of Zion more than any other dwelling place in all of Israel. There is a uniqueness to Zion. It is uniquely special to God. It uniquely draws his affection. Here's what another psalm says. Psalm 132, 13. 
For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. So why is Zion significant? Let me boil it down to just one simple statement. Zion is significant because it is the epicenter of God's promises and God's presence. It is the epicenter of God's promises and his presence. God's promises. God promised to give David a son who would sit on his throne and reign as God's anointed for all eternity. Questions. Where is the city of David? Where is the throne of David? And will, where will the reign of David's future son emanate from? Answer, from Zion. Listen to Psalm 2, verse 6. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have set my king, where? On Zion, my holy hill. So it is the epicenter of God's promises. It's also the epicenter of God's presence. God determined he chose to make his dwelling place where? In Zion, right? It was Mount Zion that originally housed the Ark of the Covenant before the temple was built. It was the city of Zion that housed the temple after Solomon built it. It was Zion where the people would come from all over Israel to offer their sacrifices and participate in the worship of Yahweh. It's the epicenter of his presence. Psalm 9 verse 11. Psalm 9 11 says this. Sing praises to the Lord. Listen to this. Who sits enthroned in Zion. So Zion is both the throne of the future promised anointed son of David. And the throne of the divine king. Right? Of Yahweh himself. And of course, we see these two thrones merge in whom? In Jesus, right? Jesus is the royal son of David and Jesus is Lord. He is the great I am. Let me end this point with two verses from Psalm 48. Psalm 48 verses one and two say this. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. This is the preeminence of Zion. Second point, the people of Zion. The people of Zion. Look at what the psalmist does in verse 4. He writes, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. Notice a few things about this verse. First, notice that we've moved to what? First person language. Did you catch that? So so previously, everything was in the third person, right? He the Lord. But here, it's what? It's me and I. And who do those first person pronouns refer to? Who is speaking there? It is Yahweh, which makes this verse, this section, intensely personal because we are hearing from Yahweh himself. And what is Yahweh saying? He's saying, among those who know me, 
right? It's not know about me. It's not no facts of me. It is of those who know me in the most intimate and relational sense. Who are these people who know Yahweh? What does it say? Rahab, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Now, Rahab is a poetic name used to describe the nation of Egypt, which means that these five nations that are listed are Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. Three of those five are some of Israel's greatest historical enemies, right? So if you took a list and made a list of Israel's top 10 enemies in their history, in the Bible, and you ranked them one through 10, guess who would be in the top five? Egypt, Babylon, and Philistia. And yet what does Yahweh say there? They know me. All right, this is, this is mind-boggling. Don't, don't skate past this, right? And then look at what he writes. This one was born there, they say. And the question is, where does the word there refer to, right? Now, the obvious answer from our first three verses is Zion, right? That's been the subject of this psalm so far. Why change it when you get to verse 4? It's all been about Zion, but that doesn't make sense, does it, right? How could it be said of Egyptians and Babylonians and Philistines that they were born in Zion? And yet that's exactly what verse 5 seems to confirm, right? And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. Now, just pause for a second and think about what the psalmist is saying here. So in the first point, we established that that Zion is the holy city of God, right? It is set apart by God. It's the city that he chose and he founded. It's the city that he loves. It's the city for his worship. And who are the people of Zion, right? Who are the people of this holy city, this set apart city, this worshipful city? What do we expect to hear, right? The tribe of Judah the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Levi. But what do we hear? The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Tyrians, the Cushites. You know what we see here? We see here what we just sang, that the God of the Bible is the God who takes his enemies and by his grace makes them his friends. But not just that, it's something more. Because look back at the text. When you are born in a place, what does that typically make you? A citizen. What what does verse 5 say? This one and that one were born in her. In where? In Zion. So how, how can these Babylonians be citizens of Zion? The Philistines, how can they be citizens of Zion? And yet that's exactly the picture that's painted in verse 6. So in verse 6, we move back to the third person. And here we read, the Lord, Yahweh, records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Now, notice who's doing the recording here, right? It's not an angel. 
It's not, a, it's not some human agent. It is Yahweh himself. And what is he doing? He is moving down, as you were, a line of people, and he's making notes on them. Right? He's recording information about them. And what is he recording? What is he writing down? This one was born there. Where? Zion. Here's the picture that we should have. These, these once pagan Gentile nations are gathered and Yahweh himself is going down and writing down, this one born in my city. This one born in my city. Because God is the God who not only takes his enemies and makes them his friends, he takes his enemies and he makes them his people. Let me just pause here and apply it to those of you who might be gathered with us and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Perhaps you, you've walked into this room and you know that. Or perhaps you've walked into this room and you are self-deceived and you think that because you've gone to church all your life or because you're part of a Bible study or a community group that you're a Christian, but you're not. So here's the thing. If you are here today and you are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, then you stand as an enemy of God. You stand opposed to the God who made the universe with a word. You stand in rebellion against the creator of the universe. You stand, as it were, with your puny fist raised against the Almighty One. And that is a terrifying thing. And yet, and yet it can be said of you this morning, this one was born in Zion. You can go this morning from being an enemy of God to being his friend. You can go this morning from being one who is rightly condemned by God to hell to being forgiven by him. You can go from being a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, of Satan himself, to being a citizen of the holy city of Yahweh with all the rights and benefits thereof. How? By going to church enough? By reading your Bible enough? By praying enough? May it never be. Simply by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, Jesus died to make enemies of God his friends. He died to make citizens of the kingdom of darkness, citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And if you have never put your faith in Jesus, that's what this whole sermon is about. It is about God declaring from his holy city that those who were once his enemies, those who were once far off, can now be made his friends can now be brought into his family, can now have a part in his kingdom. How? By turning from their sins and putting their trust in Jesus Christ alone. As we just sang, once his enemies, now what? Seated at his table. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that can be you today. You can go from being an enemy of God to having a seat at his table as one of his children. These people, 
in this psalm who were once far off, right? Who were once natural enemies of the people of God and therefore God himself. These are the people who are named as the people of Zion. Third point, the praise of Zion. We've seen the preeminence of Zion. We've seen the people of Zion. Third and finally, we see the praise of Zion. We move in verse 7 away from this scene of, of this multitude of men and women and children from these Gentile nations being recorded as citizens of Zion to now we're in Zion itself and the celebration is loud. Right? We've moved, if you will, from the guest list to the party. What's happening in verse 7? Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Let's unpack this. The fact that we are in Zion and that they're singing in Zion shouldn't surprise us, right? Because if you know the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel were a singing people. So the fact that they're singers shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us, especially as a good Baptistic church, is that there's dancing, right? The presence of dancers is unusual. So the question we need to ask is, well, where in Israel's history did the people of God worship him through dancing? Because that's a very rare occurrence. Let me give you two places that I believe are being alluded to here. Some of you who know your Old Testament, maybe these are popping to your mind. The first is when the people of Israel are brought safely out of Egypt. You remember that? You guys went through it last year. In Exodus 15, Moses is leading the people, right? They've, they have escaped Egypt and Moses is leading the people in song and praise. And we read in Exodus 15, 20, that Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and what? And dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's the first likely allusion of Psalm 87, where the people of God are dancing in worship to him. Second possible, probable allusion is when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the royal city. You remember this? The Ark had been previously taken by the Philistines. David's bringing it back into the city. We read in 2 Samuel 6, 14. And David did what? He danced before the Lord with all his might. You remember that? So dancing is not typically associated with the worship of God by the people of God, except in very unique circumstances. And I would contend that the psalmist has those two unique circumstances in mind when he writes this. Now, let's think about those two circumstances in light of our psalm. So circumstance number one, Exodus 15. The people of God have been redeemed from generational slavery to which nation? Egypt and their evil king Pharaoh. And they're being redeemed into the promised land. How fitting that in Psalm 87, it is... Egyptians who are being registered as citizens of Zion. Registered as citizens of the capital city of the promised land who are singing and dancing in worship of God for their redemption. 
Circumstance number two, right? Second Samuel 6, the people of God, most importantly, David, are celebrating because of the Ark of the Covenant, where God made his presence to dwell, is being brought back into the promised land, right? Into the, into the city of the king. Now, what had happened to the Ark? It had been taken by the Philistines. How fitting that in Psalm 87, it is Philistines who are rejoicing and singing and dancing. Why? Because they are in the presence of God in his holy city and they have been made citizens of that place. Right? Think about it. Egyptians who once enslaved God's people, the Philistines who once took the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in their temple for their false god, Dagon, Egyptians and Philistines are being brought into Zion and they have been registered as citizens of Zion. And now they are joining this multi-ethnic, multicultural Jew and Gentile congregation singing and dancing in unhindered praise and worship to their God, Yahweh. Church, this is the glorious vision of all true missionary work, right? It is to see a multi-ethnic, multicultural assembly of those who were once enemies of God, of those who were once violent jihadists, of those who were once Christian-hating Hindus, of those who were once Jesus-despising Jews, of those who were once God-is-dead-declaring atheists, of those who were once living for their own pleasure hedonists, of those who were once demon-worshipping Satanists, and of those who were once self-righteous churchgoers, singing and dancing and praising the Lamb who was slain. Church, that's why we send and support missionaries. That's why we bathe them in prayer. That's why we respond to their email updates with encouraging words. That's why we send pastors and elders to go and minister to them. That's why we raise them up from our own ranks and train them and commission them and send them out. And that's why some of us go ourselves to see this type of worship happen. And what is this multitude of previous enemies singing? What are they singing in in verse 7? All my springs are in you. All my springs are in you. What are they talking about? What springs were in the city of Jerusalem? Well, what is a spring? Spring is a, it's a fountain of water, right? It's, a, it's a, a place where fresh life-giving water doesn't just trickle, right? It, it abundantly pours forth. And again, when we read that, we shouldn't just pass by it. We, we need to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Well, let's think about this image of, of a spring in three different places in Scripture. First place, Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, there is water in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 9 and 10, we read, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 10. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. 
And there it divided and became four rivers. So what we have in Genesis 2 is this source of fresh water that is abundantly flowing from Eden. And it's watering the garden and it is dividing into these four rivers. So keep that in your mind. Now, watch what happens in Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel has this vision of the, of the temple. And in the midst of the temple, this building is water. And in verse 1 of Ezekiel 47, we read, Then he brought me to the back door, excuse me, then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. Okay? And then the camera zooms out, and we see that the, the water issuing from the temple is actually feeding into this river. Does that sound familiar? And in verse 12, we read this. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. And their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the temple. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So what's going on in Ezekiel 47? There's a plumbing problem in the temple, right? You're not supposed to have water gushing forth from the threshold of the temple. A spring, as it were, is in the midst of the temple and it is bursting forth with fresh water that is so abundant that it's flowing into a river and this river is producing all sorts of life. And we see that there are trees alongside this river and they're growing and that some of these trees sound an awful, like, awful lot like the tree of life from the Garden of Eden because we read their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Okay, so you have Eden, temple, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, verse 2, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So what do we have here? We have a spring of life flowing from a throne in the middle of the city of God. The spring is flowing into a river. And the river feeds a tree. And it's not just any tree, but it's a tree of life. And the tree of life produces leaves that are for the healing of what? The healing of the nations. And in Psalm 87, verse 7, we see the nations. These foreign pagan nations gathering in the city of God, around the throne of God. And they are declaring, all my springs are in you. The nations are declaring 
in Zion and of Zion. All my life is in you. Living water is in you. Healing for the nations for us is in you. The Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Philistines and the Tyrians and the Cushites, once enemies of God and his people, are in Zion and they are praising God and they are declaring in one unified voice. In you, O city of Zion, is my hope and my life and my joy. In you and in you alone, I find refreshment and vitality. And if we were to zoom out and look at the course of all of Scripture, we would see that it's not just them. It's not just the Egyptians and the Babylonians, but that it's the Bengali of Bangladesh and the Japanese of Japan, and the Shaikh of India, and the Turks of Turkey, and the Persian of Iran, and the Malay of Malaysia, and the Sunda of Indonesia, and the Hausa of Nigeria, and the Han of China, and the Algerian of Algeria, and the Pashtun of Pakistan, and the Burmese of Myanmar, and all the people groups of the world will one day gather and in one triumphant, unified, glorious, eardrum-shattering voice declare of the city of God, the city of the Lamb, all my springs are in you. This is the praise of Zion. And this is why all Christians and all churches must have God's heart for the nations because our deepest desire should be that the lamb receive the worship that he alone deserves. And this has been God's heart from before the world ever began. His heart has not merely been for for Jewish people, but for all the nations. His heart has not merely been for, for church people or religious people or people whose parents and grandparents went to church. His heart has not just been for Americans or English speakers. His heart has been for all the families of the earth. His heart has been that his enemies, those who have rebelled against him, in sin might be made his friends. His heart has been that those who have been blinded by their sin and blinded by the devil, who are by nature sons and daughters of darkness and destruction, might be rescued and brought into Zion to receive the balm of the tree of life. And this is not the tree of Eden, friends. No, this is the tree of life that was perched up on Calvary's hill. The tree covered with the blood of the lamb. Friends, this is the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to be a safe place with good people who attend nice services and send their good children to sweet little children's classes. The mission of the church is a rescue mission. It is to go sometimes across the street, sometimes across the office, sometimes across the school cafeteria, sometimes across the living room, Sometimes across the country, sometimes across the political aisle, sometimes across an ocean to rescue those who otherwise seem farthest away from God and to rescue them, not in their own power and their own wisdom or their own strength, but to rescue them by pointing them to the lamb, to the lamb who was slain on Calvary's hill, the one whose blood makes the enemies of God, his friends, 
the one whose blood enrolls the nations into the citizenship of Zion. Let me end by reading you what is undoubtedly one of my favorite passages of any book I've ever read. It's a section from Adoniram Judson's letter to Mr. Hasseltine asking permission to wed his 21-year-old daughter, Anne, a letter that Adoniram wrote just after he was appointed a missionary to India. This is what he wrote. I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? So I ask you, Chinese Grace Bible Church, what will you do for the sake of Zion and the glory of God among the nations? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you this morning for you are the one who established your city, Zion, the great city. And you are the one who takes those who are natural enemies of you and your people and you by your grace enroll them as citizens in Zion. And you are the one who calls your people, us, Christians, us, the church, to be ambassadors of Zion, to declare near and to declare far that there is still room in Zion for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in the lamb who was slain. Help us, O God, to be individuals and to be a church that is passionate for the glory of Zion and her king. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.